Well, guys, this is Ephesians uh, message number two. Message number two. We're going to be reading primarily verse 15 through 23, but I think it would be helpful to read the whole chapter, give you guys context. All right. So let's do that. This is what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, some translations here attribute this to the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's any way to avoid this being about the spirit of God giving wisdom, but I think other translations would be more accurate to say, be saying this is a, the spiritual wisdom. It could be a lowercase s, the spirit of wisdom. That is, of course, sourced in the Holy Spirit but there can be a spirit of wisdom that is an extension of the Holy Spirit to the believer. So I think, I don't know, just a confusing translation right there. It may give you the spirit of wisdom and uh, revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Thank you for that encouraging comment on TikTok. Thank you. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, being the Father, put all things under his feet, Jesus. I don't know why either of these aren't capitalized. And gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. All right. Let's back it up to verse 15. My tea is boiling hot, so i got to cool it down somehow. Don't be hot anymore, tea. Cool down. So let's back it up to verse 15 through 23, and we're going to explore the, the prayer of Paul and how it relates to the divine power of God. I love this section. It, if there's any section that has informed my prayer life um, the most, it would probably be this one. This one right here, to look at what Paul prays for. And of course, the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6, but this one, man, is something that I constantly am praying, constantly. This has influenced and shaped the way that I pray, and I hope it does for you. Because once I saw what Paul was asking the Lord to do, once I saw the need for this, I went, I need to be praying for this every day, for the church every day, for my wife, for my family to, to have this every day. So let's unpack verse 15. It says, for this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, because I've heard of your love toward all the saints. Now, Paul spent 18 months 
in Ephesus. I believe. 18 months. Um, maybe it was two years. It was one of the two. A year and a half or two years. Either way, he was there for a long time. And Paul has heard of the continuing love and faith. Now, it's one thing to plan a church. It's another thing to know that, you know, a little while after, maybe a year later, a couple years later, they're still going strong. And it seems like they're still going strong. He's heard about their continuing faith, their loyalty, and their, their sustaining love for all, for all the saints. And he says, because of this, now this is interesting to me, because I've heard of your love, because I've heard of, there's my daughter in the background, because I've heard of your love and your faith. He says, look, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I don't, my, my daughter's okay. She's just freaking out because something got taken away. I don't think we're terrible parents. My wife's got it. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, what Paul is going to pray for is really unique to this church. It doesn't mean it's only for this church, but it's almost prompted by what he's heard about from this church. So he goes, I remember you in my prayers. And just pause. I think a lot of believers have trouble praying in general. Being, praying in general and just getting into the word at all. Um, and so that's one layer to break through. But once you're someone who prays, it's like, well, how often do you remember not just the needs and the issues of your brothers and sisters, but also what you have to be thankful for? Paul says, I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you when I remember you in my prayers. Now, this doesn't mean Paul, every single second of his life, is constantly thanking God for the Ephesian church. There's a lot more that Paul has to think about and do regarding other churches and what God's called him to. But when he does remember the Ephesian church in his prayers, he gives thanks. He thanks them for their love. He, he thanks God for their love, thanks God for their faith. And I wonder, like, is that a... Is that a thing that we've experienced before, you know, where I've just sat in prayer and go, man, I'm encouraged and I'm reminded of the good fruit that I see in my brothers and sisters. I'm reminded of the good that they're doing and, the, and how they're continuing in you. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for that. That, that stimulates faith. That stimulates um, a fire. That encourages us to keep going when we're, we're mindful of all the good things God is doing in the rest of his church. So Paul um, remembers all the reasons he has to thank God for the Ephesian church. Then he says, here's what I pray for. And this is what I really want you to pay attention to. He goes, I pray. I pray. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And it, now again, I, like, I don't like the ESV's translation here attributing this like the spirit of wisdom it sounds like the believers are getting a holy spirit like a new holy spirit i, I don't like that the, the other translations like new king james and king james will translate this just as a lowercase spirit or i think the niv translates it spiritual wisdom no matter what this wisdom is coming from the spirit of god okay but what's being given is not the spirit himself it's an extension of the Spirit of God, but He is the one distributing it. He is the one giving this wisdom. He is the one giving this revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Okay? So no matter what, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. But I think it's more accurate to say, Paul is asking, Lord, would you give them the spiritual wisdom and the revelation that's found in the knowledge of you? Would you give them that? Would you give them that? And so this is, uh, I think, something that can shape our prayers a little more. If, if Paul is praying, Lord, would you open the eyes of their hearts? He goes, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. So Paul's praying, Lord, if you could give it some, some modern language. Lord, I pray for the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. I pray that they would know. And he's going to go on to say what he wants them to know. But first of all, I pray that they would know you. Because through the knowledge of you, Lord revelation and wisdom comes so would you give them the spiritual wisdom that comes from knowing you would you give them a revelation that comes from knowing you would you open the eyes of their hearts that they might know you right that they might apply that with that knowledge appropriately and walk in the truth so the spiritual wisdom or the spirit of wisdom he's asking for comes in the knowledge of christ it's not apart from the knowledge of christ it's not without the knowledge of jesus it comes through that 
So what comes attached to a fresh knowledge of God, what comes attached to that is a revelation that should change how I live and wisdom, wisdom, okay? Wisdom is applied knowledge. Revelation is insight into the knowledge. You might say understanding of that knowledge. It's one thing to know something as fact. One thing to know the information. It's another thing to understand that in a way where it's revealed to my heart. And it's another thing to apply that revealed knowledge. It's another thing to actually walk it out and do it. And so Paul is praying, look, Lord, I pray they know you. Would you give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that will change the way they live that comes attached to knowing you? Lord, would you open the eyes of their hearts, enlighten the eyes of their hearts? Enlightenment is a biblical concept. Now, it's been twisted for other religions. It's been twisted to be this, this weird kind of new agey kind of deal. But look, enlightenment is a fantastic thing when it's relating to Jesus opening the eyes of my heart. I need to be enlightened. So if you didn't know, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 right now. For I saw someone that asked, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And this word enlightened, let's just look it up real quick. Ephesians 1.18, we might get to a little Bible class slash workshop today where I take you through the way that I read the Bible, enlightened, uh, to give light, to shine, to illuminate, to reveal. Okay, that makes sense. Or would you open the eyes of their hearts, right? Would you shine the light of your truth into their hearts? Would you reveal what is otherwise hidden and open the eyes of their hearts? You know, um, there are several times Jesus mentions his miracles healing the blind, like the physical blind, was actually a demonstration of a spiritual reality. That the eyes of the apostles, the eyes of their hearts, their spiritual eyes, had yet to see Jesus clearly. They weren't fully opened. They weren't seeing clearly. Um, and there's a truth to that, that. The eyes of our hearts, our spiritual vision, you might say, often gets clouded and distorted. And we need to progressively... Uh, grow in the vision and the knowledge of Christ. This is what Paul's praying for. Now, as we read this, I want you to know, this is actually what we should be praying for, not just ourselves, but for each other. That, like Jess says, this is how we should be praying for the churches. There's really no excuse here. This is how we should be praying for the churches, for my brothers and sisters, for my family, for me. Like, this, is, this seems to be a, a primary focus of Paul's prayer time. It doesn't mean it's ultimate, but it does mean it's a concern of his. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So what is the product of having their eyes enlightened by the knowledge of Christ? Well, this is the product. This is the end goal. This is what Paul is concerned with. That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now, Christ Jesus is our hope. So no matter which way you, you cut this, what he's saying is, I want you to know Christ. I pray that you would know him. And that's going to be a theme throughout the book of Ephesians, is this knowledge, this knowing, um, this knowing Christ and, and, and what he's done for us, and knowing his love. So it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Now we'll get to there. We'll get to that in a minute. But there are three things Paul is concerned with here that the church would know. He goes, I want you to grow in the knowledge of Christ. I want God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that comes through knowing God better. I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened to see clearer or to know better three things. The hope, God's glorious inheritance, and his power that works for you. There are three things Paul wants the church, and we should pursue to understand. This hope, the glorious inheritance God refers to us as, and the power that's working towards us. There are three things. Now Paul's going to elaborate for the next one, two, three, four verses on this power. He's not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the hope. He's not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the inheritance language. Well, he will later, like how we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ and how we have an inheritance in, by the Spirit. He's already touched on that. 
until we acquire the inheritance waiting for us. But this inheritance is not necessarily our inheritance waiting for us. This is God's inheritance. This is His possession. This is what He chooses to value and delight in. And it, and it seems to be the saints. Now let's unpack these things that Paul prays for the church to know. If there are three things you can pray to know every day, it's these three things. The hope that we've been called to, the hope we have in Christ, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in His people, how He delights in us, how He values us, how He calls us His own a treasured possession, how He actually takes, um, <clears throat> I don't know, sees significance in us and assigns value to us as the, as the church. And the third thing is that you and I might know the power that's driving our life. There is a power behind your life. There's a power behind your life. And that power is unstoppable in nature. That, that power is divine. That power is God himself. That power is what raised Christ from the dead. And that power can accomplish things that you and I could never dream of. That power is, is limitless. It's sourced in God and he'll accomplish what he wants in your life. There is no restrictions on this power. And we'll get to that power in a minute. But I wonder why Paul breaks from praising God about all the blessings we have in Christ, why he breaks and goes, this is why, since I've heard of your faith, I pray for you. This is why I pray for you. Interesting, Paul, like leading in from all the blessings we have in Christ. For this reason, for this reason, because I've heard of your love and your faith, and because of everything I've told you in the first 14 verses, this is why I pray for you. Now, what about our blessings in Christ and our identity in Jesus would compel Paul to break out in prayer and remind the church of what he's praying for? What's the connection there? What's the connection there? Hmm. Something worth thinking about. I'm not sure I absolutely understand that, actually. But maybe we can understand that better by looking at verse 18. He says he wants the church to know the hope that God has called us to. There is a living hope, a living hope that transcends this life, that overrides um, the darkness in this world, and that enables me to fight through what you might call the difficulties of this life. There is a hope that I cling to that is beyond this existence. There's a hope I've been called to, invited into in my faith. So when we believe, we come into and are born again into a living hope. And that hope is something that I need to better understand every single day. There is a hope that I currently have, and I'm immersed into it, but I'm not fully aware of it. I don't understand it deeply. I need to, though, because that hope is what's going to drive the way that I live. We live in the direction of our hopes. So if I could better understand the hope that I have in Jesus, who is my ultimate hope, if I can understand the hope that comes attached to him, that he's called me and invited me into, well, it's going to make for a fantastic life. And what I should do is pray and go, Lord, there's a hope that I have that I don't understand. There's a hope you've given me that I really long to know. Would you please open the eyes of my heart? Would you please deeply like, penetrate my heart with this hope in the knowledge of Christ so that I would be aware as I live life, I'd be aware of this magnificent hope I have and I'm invited into and I'm currently in. The other thing Paul prays for is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, this is some weird language because you and I might think Paul's saying, man, guys, I pray you would just know the inheritance you have in Christ. And that's also something we should know, but that's not the focus here. The focus is that we would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. The his refers to God. God has a glorious inheritance. What's the inheritance? It's in the saints. We are the inheritance and the treasured possession of God. And we can know the riches of the glorious inheritance that he calls his church and his body. 
In other words, we can know the degree to which we are valued and treasured by God. Now, if you take this to mean our inheritance, that's fine. That doesn't change anything necessarily. It's You still have an inheritance in Christ, and it's attached to the hope of Christ. So that might make more sense. But the language here implies this is God's glorious inheritance. Now you might say, well, everything I have in Christ technically belongs to God, so it's His. And I'm called to know the riches of His glorious inheritance that I have. That's fine. You can take it there. I have no reason to disagree with that. And I don't know if we have to necessarily choose either. But the language implies that God has a glorious inheritance in the saints. It's not for the saints. It's, it's, it's actually about the saints. Like the saints, the believers, are his inheritance that he treasures and values. That's what our God has decided to do. He's assigned to the church an incredible amount of value. And he so treasures us. I mean, what, where in the New Old Testament does it talk about him singing over his people? There is a, there's a degree to which God says, I delight in you. I don't just tolerate you. I, I love you. You're my beloved. I delight in you. I find incredible pleasure in you. You're my inheritance and my, my treasured possession. Now, Paul wants us to better understand that. To better understand just how much we are treasured by God. Just... Just how, um, how far God goes in calling us the riches of his glorious inheritance. It's crazy. Now, the riches of Jesus seem to be another topic. The riches of what we have waiting for us in heaven and what we have available in Christ now. The riches God has given us. That seems to be a different dimension of, of this salvation. But the glorious inheritance that God has in his people seems to be something I should open my hands daily and go, Lord, I want to know that how much you treasure us. I want to know what it means that you call me your glorious inheritance. I want to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, in us. I want to know that. There's something about being valued and known and treasured and delighted in. There's something about that, being wanted by the living God and being called his treasured possession. There's something about that that gives a person the, the strength to keep going and the hope to keep believing, right? And the joy to keep struggling through the hardship. You know, there's something about like he wants me, he knows me fully inside and out. He knows every sin I'll ever commit, every weakness I have, every time I'll fail him. He knows it completely unfolded before him. And he chooses to delight in me, to delight in us as the church, but that includes me. And the third thing that Paul's going to go into quite a bit of detail on and is going to be a theme in Ephesians is power, specifically the power of God. So verse 19 says, look, I, I pray that you'd have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power. What's immeasurable mean? Infinite, unrestricted, limitless, endless. The greatness of God's power, not just the power itself. Okay, we're not even talking about the power as the object of our focus. The immeasurable, that adjective is attached to the greatness of God's power. So God's power has a greatness. And that greatness, not even just the power, the greatness that comes, that's emanating from that power, that greatness is immeasurable. It's limitless. Okay? And we are called to know, where we should plead with the Lord to help us know better, not just the power that drives our life, but the immeasurable greatness that emanates from that power into our life, that's demonstrated in life, that's demonstrated throughout history, that's demonstrated in Scripture, that's demonstrated in the lives of those around me. I want to better know the greatness of that power, like the majesty of that power, the effects of that power. Okay, it's immeasurable. It's so great. Now, this power is toward us who believe. I want you to really think about that. As believers, there is a power 
that has an immeasurable, limitless greatness attached to it. It is so great, there's no way to cap it off. There's no way to restrict this power. That divine power is towards us who believe. Not everyone, but those who believe. Now, does that sound like the Christian is weak and lacking and incapable and, you know, really powerless and helpless? On their own? Sure. Without God? Sure. With God? Heck no. Heck no. This power is toward us who believe. Now, what power is Paul asking the Lord to reveal, you know, to the Ephesians? What Paul's going, look, Lord, <laughs> Ephesian church, the church in general, they need to know the greatness of your power that it's behind their life, that it backs their life, that what you call them to, Lord, you back it with your divine power that can't be stopped. There is an unstoppable power. Now, all we know in this life is, is limited power. We only know of limited, restricted power that caps off eventually, that can be measured and, you know, and, and analyzed and scientifically observed. The power of God, there's no cap. There's no limit. And Paul's going, Lord, I pray they would know that power, but also I pray they would know the degree to which that power actually backs their life. We're not out here on our own going, I don't know, Lord, I, I feel weak. He goes, well, without me, you are weak, but what I'm calling you to, I'm enabling with my power. Like anything God calls us to, he backs it with his own divine power. And so my life as a believer Everything I do that's consistent with God's word, that's consistent with his character, that's in honor to him. When I live life led by the spirit, he compels us by his power. Like he backs us. There's a force that's backing us and it can't be stopped. And God's not just an impersonal force. I'm talking about his power that he chooses to exercise towards us. And you go, well, how big is this power? How strong is it? And Paul goes, well, it's according to the working of his great might. It's the same power, essentially, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When he raised him from the dead. That's a lot of power. It's a lot of power required to conquer death and to raise back to life. It's a lot of power. But it doesn't stop there. The power of God doesn't stop. It's like we're, if we're in like a laboratory watching the power of God on full display in an experiment. The experiment doesn't stop once Jesus is raised from the dead. It keeps going. Okay, the power keeps going. He seated him. Not only was Jesus raised, which by the way, this word raised, another key word in Ephesians. I'm going to highlight key words along the way that I hope you'll circle, that I hope you'll notice things like inheritance power okay raise these are these are words knowledge spirit you got to pay attention to these words Woo! this power is also demonstrated through god the father seating jesus at his right hand and going to come up and sit with me as the divinely resurrected human as the only uniquely appointed high priest for all of humanity, as the only one who's capable of satisfying sin, as the only perfect sacrifice that I accept on behalf of all humanity, come and sit at my right hand as the resurrected human, the perfect human everyone failed to be. Okay. So, when Jesus is seated at the right hand, ascends in the book of Acts, chapter 1, or at the end of Luke, or the end of Matthew, when Jesus ascends, and goes up into the kingdom of heaven. <sighs> Takes on a cloud. Floats on up. When that happens, there's something unique taking place there. The ascension of Jesus is often a, a, a neglected doctrine. Should, we just forget about it. We don't think it's as important. But the ascension of Jesus, 
essentially is what makes the resurrection what it is. Jesus resurrecting from the dead and just staying alive doesn't do much for us. Unless he breaks through the barrier that separates heaven and earth, goes into the holy of holies, the true heavenly holy of holies, and atones for sin. His resurrection doesn't mean much without the ascension. It's still cool, like he's still God, but it doesn't do much for me personally unless he goes into the holy of holies as our high priest and mediates a better covenant with his blood and actually atones for our sin by, you know, uh, uh, putting his blood on the mercy seat, you might say. Because remember, in, in Exodus, everything Moses is called to build in the tabernacle, everything that's assembled in the tabernacle is, a, is, is made after the image in heaven, like the real deal in heaven. It's just a copy on earth. The earthly tabernacle is just a copy of the true heavenly temple. So Jesus goes into that at the ascension, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This word seated refers to Jesus being done. High priests don't sit down. High priests are always standing because their work is never finished. There's always another sacrifice to bring. There's always more sin to atone for. There's always more blood to shed and, and, and to put on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. So the high priest never is sitting. It's always standing until another high priest takes his place once he dies. And another high priest takes his place when he dies. I'm only going into this because Jesus being seated at the right hand in the heavenly places not only refers to the power he has and the authority, uh, but the sufficiency of his sacrifice. He's done. He's finished. When he cried out on the cross, it's finished, like he really meant, it is done. The weight of sin has been borne. The burden of sin has been handled. The debt has been paid. The perfect life has been, you know, uh, sacrificed. Blood has been shed that's sufficient for atoning sin. It's finished. And he didn't just raise to life. Oh, look, he raised to life. What does that do for me? No, he actually ascended into heaven. Okay. and is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. Heavenly places is also a key term you should pay attention to in Ephesians. This idea of heavenly places, heavenly realms. And when Jesus was seated, this seated language is not just sufficiency. It's not just power and authority. It's referring to conquering and triumphing. It's a victorious kind of thing. Jesus sitting symbolizes and signifies that the victory has been won over sin, over death, over the devil, so that anyone who believes in Christ and that beautiful name of Jesus can actually follow in his footsteps into the Holy of Holies to be with God for all eternity. He makes way for us. He sits so we can follow in his footsteps to reign with him on the new earth. So this language of being seated at the right hand and the power that's demonstrated in that is not just talking about Jesus raised from the dead. Hooray. Jesus fixed our sin. Hooray. No, it's he conquered every enemy that stood in opposition to us. Every master we were enslaved to. Sin, death, the devil, and the law that penalized us. He freed us from all those things. The penalty of the law we're free from. The devil, we're free from. Powers of darkness and sin, you know, condemning me, free from it. Death, spiritual death, free from it. He conquered. That's the language here. This is not just like, he kind of did a nice thing. No, he won. He conquered, triumphed over all the enemies that you and I were powerless to face. And he was seated far above. Watch. Watch the language here. He's seated by the power of God above all rule. Everyone who has any authority to rule in any capacity, he's above them. Anyone who has any authority on earth or in the heavenly places, he's conquered. He's above them. 
Anyone who has any degree of power or dominion, you might say borrowed power from God, borrowed dominion from God, borrowed authority and rule. Any being on earth or in the heavenly places who has any degree of authority and power and dominion, Jesus is above all of them. And you and I go, well, that's weird. I thought Jesus is God. Wasn't he always above them? Yeah, this isn't about Jesus being God and winning a, a spot that's above them. This is Jesus as the perfect human being resurrected so that a human being, like Daniel sees in his vision, a human being coming on the clouds with power, right, to the Father, to the Ancient of Days. That's who Jesus is. He is the one who has been ascended above all authority and power and dominion, not just on earth, but in the heavenly places. He is the ultimate symbol of pure, ultimate power. Perfect dominion and authority is Jesus. Now, that's not as God. He didn't win something back that he lacked. He won what we lost, right? What we forfeited in the garden. He wins back our position in authority over the earth. He wins that back so we can image God well in relationship with God. He wins it back. He conquers. That's why he ascends above all rule and authority and dominion and power. So that if I'm seated with Jesus in heavenly places, which is what Ephesians 2 is going to say, if I'm seated with him, where am I seated? Where am I seated? What, is, what does it mean to be seated in heavenly places? Am I both here and there at the same time? No, it just means you are above with Christ, seated with him. You're above all rule and authority and power and dominion. You can't be touched by any spiritual forces of the demonic and the darkness. They can't touch you. Now, you can be influenced. You can be bothered temporarily. You can be led into temptation. But you cannot be touched at the core of who you are, your soul and your heart, you as a human secure in Jesus, right? You're untouchable because you're on a level with Jesus that's above all the darkness. You and I used to be under the darkness. Okay, here's where we bring in Genesis 3. I have to, I have to, okay? When Adam and Eve fall, they come under the authority of the serpent rather than submitting to the authority of God. They submit themselves to the word of the serpent and believe what he says, right? However you think the serpent is and what do you think he is? That doesn't matter. The point is, he seems to be a spiritual being that has this secret knowledge that he dispenses to Adam and Eve and they choose not to believe God and submit to his authority. They choose to submit to the serpent who is the representative of darkness, who represents everything that is in rebellion to God, right? He's the one that's at the head of that. He's the poster boy for sin. And they submit to him. And they come under, right? When they should have been above, they came under the uh, pretend authority of the serpent. And it, actually, it became actualized. Right? And we actually forfeited, handed over the right to rule the earth as image bearers of God in relationship with God in the garden. We handed that over to the serpent, which is why he's the ruler of this age, which is why Ephesians 2 is going to call him uh, the spirit, uh, the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit at now at work in the disobedience. Um, and we'll get to that. We're not there yet. But I want you to see what Jesus does and why he does it. Okay. Picture us, now that we're in sin, we're under the authority by decree of the law because the law just explains and declares my sin has just penalty well i'm under the penalty of that because i've come under and submitted my will to the enemy and said i want to sin i want to rebel i want to oppose god so i get penalty well i'm under darkness until someone comes into my darkness sets me free breaks open the doors and says you not only are free, you're now above what you used to be under. That's what Christ has done. So we used to be under enemies. Jesus comes in. He goes, I'm not under them. <laughs> Trust me. But I'm going to break you out as the perfect resurrected human. I'm going to ascend into the heavens and break you out of this so that you can stand above the spiritual darkness you were once enslaved to. 
you were once, you know, trapped in. So he ascends above all rule and authority and power and dominion for our benefit. For our benefit. Because we lacked the power and authority, not Jesus. We lacked it. So he ascends, seated at the right hand of the Father, to make way for us to mediate a new covenant, to be our high priest, to stand there in the gap so that I can be seated in him, with him, through faith, right? And so where Jesus is, so am I positionally and spiritually. Where Christ is and who he is in the sight of the Father as the perfect human, well, that gets transferred to me so that I'm actually above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So when human beings have faith in Jesus, they are brought to such a high place, such a high place. When I really say like, when I say you and I have been brought to the highest point of human existence, I really mean it. I mean, he ascends so we can follow with him, right? He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to reign in the new earth so we can reign with him. You see how Jesus comes into our problem to break us out and give us what he, the free gift that he's won and the rewards of his victory? He gives it to us. But he conquered all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now, you can say this is earthly rule. I beg to differ. And you might say, well, what do you mean? Well, if he's seated in the heavenly places, and we're primarily speaking of the spiritual realm, you might say, okay, Paul's not going to shift gears and start talking about the earth. If he's seated in the heavenly places, what kind of beings, what kind of rule and authority and power and dominion do you think Jesus has conquered and transcended? Well, I would have to say it's this heavenly or spiritual kind of um, being. At least that's what I would say. Now, here's why. I'm going to go on. And you might say, well, it's talking about the governments of our world and, and no human authority can, can reverse what Christ has done. Sure, sure. I'll give you that. But let's go on. He's been seated, right, above. Do you remember what Jesus, not Jesus, well, you remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden after they fell? Remember? There's a promise God gives to Adam and Eve. He says, look, the promised seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Right? So there's going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Whoever the promised seed is, Jesus, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be above the serpent and defeat him. Crush his head like David chopped off the head of Goliath, right? And that's exactly what Jesus does. Exactly what he does. Now, Jesus is above, which is what enables him to crush, right? You can't crush something unless you're above it. He crushes the head of the serpent at the cross. Now, there's a twofold victory here. It's already finished, but the full scope of that victory hasn't been realized for us. We don't experience the full scope of that victory. Meaning, I still see sin. I still see spiritual darkness. I still see people in opposition to God. I still see rebels. Okay, so I don't see the full scope of that victory realized yet, but it's coming. But we have enough to at least live in the victory of Christ now in anticipation of the full defeat of darkness. But the point of bringing in Genesis 3 is... Um, should I bring in Cain? Cain was told to master sin. Cain was told to master sin. He said, look, God tells Cain right before he's about to kill Abel, spoiler, before Cain decides, I'm going to murder my brother. God goes, hey, sin's crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is to consume you. Like, you need to conquer that thing. In other words, you need to rise above, exercise authority over it, and stomp it out. Don't submit yourself to it and be conquered by it. He ends up giving into darkness and killing Abel instead of exercising authority above it. And this language of crushing and being above, it's actually what we see in um, Peace will crush Satan. Now you'll, I know some people read Genesis 3 and they go, hey, this is talking about Jesus being uh, the promised seed of the woman. I agree. I'm not denying that whatsoever. 
Okay? Not denying that at all. What I am saying is he is the one who represents all of humanity. Is that correct? I think so. So, what he does makes way for me to do the same thing. So I can follow in his footsteps through faith. In other words, his victory becomes mine. Right? His triumph over sin becomes mine. I didn't win it. I didn't achieve it. It's not by my efforts. He did it. I just trust in him, take refuge in Christ through faith, and I get everything he's done. And I participate in his victory. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's that above language. There's that crushing the head of the serpent language. There's that, hey, master sin language. All jammed into First Corinthians or Romans 16.20 here. Paul says the God of peace. Who's doing the crushing? God. Who's he doing it through? Well, it seems to be that we are the feet who are standing above Satan. And I didn't achieve it. I didn't do it. I'm not the, the ultimate victory. It's Jesus who enables that. I just follow in his footsteps. So I want you to see the ultimate crushing of the serpent comes by Jesus. But I also get to follow in his footsteps and crush, stand above spiritual darkness as well. Because he's granted that to me by his grace. It's not to inflate your ego. It's to leave you humble. So when Paul says, and again, this is still a part of a prayer, remember? He goes, Lord, I pray they would know this power. So the power you're seeing demonstrated here, when Jesus is raised from the dead, that's power. When he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, that's power. When he's seated above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that's real power. He's untouchable. Every spiritual, physical, earthly authority, okay, in, in any kind of way, power exists. He's above it. He's above it. And not only that, he's above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What do you think it means that Jesus is above every name? What do you think that means? Let me take you to a couple verses. Hopefully they hyperlink it. Philippians 2.9. What Philippians 2.9 says, After Jesus dying on a cross, humbly, God has ex highly exalted him and bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name. What does that mean? Well, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. No other name is going to be a cause for bowing the knee. There's no other name that every creature is going to bow before, whether in terror or in adoration and love. Everyone's going to bow the knee. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Spiritual knees, heavenly bees, knees, heavenly <laughs> bees, ah, earthly knees. Okay, whatever kind of knees you can think of, any creature that exists will bow the knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's how we know. So apparently there are creatures in heaven, creatures under the earth. Every creature in existence is going to bow the knee to Jesus. <laughs> Heavenly bees, we'll see. Hebrews 1.4 says, Having become as much superior to angels, Jesus, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Bees has knees. It's the, knee, it's the bees' knees, right? We're still stuck on that, aren't we? Having become as much superior to angels. How superior is Jesus to angels? Well, as superior as the name he has inherited is excellent than theirs, more excellent than theirs. The name Jesus has, which is the only name through which forgiveness of sin comes, right? Uh, I think Peter talks about next, no other name given among men under heaven uh, can bring forgiveness. There's no other name. What, uh, what's the language? There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation exists in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no forgiveness in any other name. I think that's Acts 4 as well. 
Yeah, the point is Jesus, his name alone provides salvation and forgiveness. His name alone is the one every knee is going to bow to. His name alone is the ultimate, infinitely superior name, preeminent. Okay? There's no name that comes close to. Now you go, I don't understand the name thing. What does name mean? Let's actually look that up real quick because there's there are different uh, ways to explain name. In other words, there's different variations of the English word name as it is unpacked in the Greek or Hebrew. Name here refers to the fame or the reputation. Um, at least in this context, Ephesians 1, usually it can refer to the sum total of the individual or the being, the character of the being, the nature of the being. But here, I think in Ephesians 1, it's referring to um, a title of honor and authority. Yeah, the fame or the reputation. So his power, and you go, I don't know every name that is named. I think the name here is linked to um, him having ultimate power and supremacy. And he put all things under his feet. This is what God has done. He put all things under the feet of Jesus. There's that above language again, right? He's above it. Everything else is beneath him. And he gave him as head, chief, supreme head over all things. So let's think about this. Paul goes, look, this is what I pray for. This is why I'm praying. By the way, this is the power I'm, I'm, I'm praying that you would know. This is the power I'm praying you would know. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that raised him to life and seated him in the heavenly places above all spiritual forces, all earthly forces, all rule, all authority, all dominion, all power is his. He's the name that is above every name. Every knee is going to bow to his name. No other name grants forgiveness and salvation. No other name has God's stamp of validation to bring someone into the kingdom through that name. Okay, no other name has ultimate supremacy. And Paul's going, I want you guys to know the power that is wrapped up in that name. When God put all things under his feet. And also, the Father gave Jesus, who, is, by the way, is the head of all things. He gave Jesus to the church. Now, we're going to be given to Christ as the bride, for sure. But here, Paul's emphasizing the head, supreme chief head, ultimate supreme power, who is above all things, he's given to the church. He's given to the church as our high priest, as our help, as our savior, as our redeemer. As the firstborn from the dead, he gives us the beautiful gift of his son. Is that not what John 3.16 says? That God gave his beloved one and only son. And here we see this giving again. God being a gift giver is not just a theme throughout the Bible, but specifically in Ephesians. And we can trace that out another day, and we will. The point here is, look. God has given us the one through whom creation came into existence, the one who sustains reality as we know it, the one who is chief, supreme, Lord, ultimate, you know, savior of all things and, and has all power. He is given to the church, gave Christ to us. And he calls the church his body. Now, the Father gives Jesus as not just the ultimate head of all things, but as specifically the head of the church. The head of the church. Since we all play a role, have a function, have a part of the body to operate as, Jesus is the ultimate head. And we're his body. Notice how Paul describes the body here. Okay, notice how he describes the body of Christ. He calls the body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, who's the one who fills all things? That would be Jesus, who is the head over all things, right? 
who has power over all things. He, apparently, the body of Christ is the fullness of Jesus. It's supposed to be. In other words, we are not just to be a, uh, filled with the Spirit of God. We collectively, as the church, should be a full demonstration of the greatness of our God. Now, not in entirety, where it's like, look at the church and you'll see the fullness of God's power. We should be a, dem a complete... God desires the church to demonstrate uh, a degree of His power and His greatness to the world. Okay? Now, we should rise to the occasion and meet the standard God has called us to, to actually display the fullness of Jesus in the earth. Display the fullness of Jesus in the earth. So Jesus is far above all rule and authority. Now, back to the prayer. This is what Paul prays, and I think what we should pray. Lord Jesus, I want to know. I, like, I want to intimately know. I want to experientially know. I want to know in my head and in my heart the power that was exercised and demonstrated through your resurrection, through your ascension, through you conquering all darkness on our behalf, through you stomping off you know, the head of the serpent. I want to know that power. Because apparently, that's the very power that works towards us who believe. That same power, that same power is working towards us. And I really want you to try and think through that as best as you can. I know you can't fully understand it. I know I can't fully understand it. I know we can't this side of heaven. But there's a lot we can if we seek to and go, Lord, I want to know, like, I want to operate in this power. I want to live like this resurrection, ascension, conquering power is backing my life. I want to I I live like I'm empowered by this, by you. You're with me. I want to live like it. We should pray to know this power and this hope. And the degree to which God values and um, calls us his treasured possession. We should seek to know these things. I shouldn't settle for the current level of knowledge I have about these things. I should long for more. We should long for more. I shouldn't settle with what I currently know. I should long for more. I really want you to get that this morning. There's a word for one of you to know where you're at isn't where you're supposed to stay. Where you are at is not where you're supposed to say the knowledge you have about the power of Christ and the love of God and the riches of his mercy. And you're not supposed to stay there and say, I've mastered it. You know, you're not supposed to think you've arrived. I think that's the antithesis to maturity. Is thinking you've arrived. Is thinking you've made it. Thinking you're here. Thinking you've, you know it. Now you can know a degree of this, but you, you won't fully know it until you stand before him and, and actually take in his majesty. So I, I pray that you guys would ask for this. Like, pray for this. If Paul's going to say, this is what I pray for, he's not just encouraging the church and going, hey, look, I pray for you. Oh, thanks, Paul. He's demonstrating what we should be praying. He's demonstrating what we should be praying. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compel some of you to, to wake up and realize there's so much more for you. There's so much more. And it comes in the revelation and the knowledge of Him. You want to know His power? You've got to know Him. You want to walk in His power? You've got to know Him. You want to have a revelation of Him that changes your life? You've got to pursue Him. You have to want it. You have to desire it. You have to go after this thing. There is immeasurable power, immeasurable greatness of power that is on your side. Why do we live like we're, like we're beggars in the street? Why do we live like we're destitute? Like I'm just looking for the next person to validate me. You have infinite power backing your life. You have the power of God enabling you to do everything He calls you to, and you're settling for a nice job in a nice house where you don't offend anyone. There's power behind living godly. There's power behind submitting your life to Jesus. And it's not just, Lord, I want to know this power in prayer and revelation. It's, I want to know, like intimately, I want to walk in this power. I want to experience this power. I want to know what it means that you've been 
as the perfect human being who represents us before the Father, what it means that you're above all things and I can follow in your footsteps. I want to know that. I don't want to live like I'm beneath everything. I don't want to live like I'm a, like I'm a victim. We're, we're not. We're conquerors. We are conquerors. We have triumphed. The, the war is over. He won. It's finished. So you and I need to not just pray that we would live like it's finished, but actually go out and do what is appropriate for a life of victory. Go out and live like what Christ has called you to. Go out and live it. Live like he's above every name. Live like he's with you. Live like he backs your life. Live like his word is true. Live like you, we as the church are the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is the power we're called to know and walk in and not be victims our whole life. I don't want to <laughs> get to heaven only living like a victim while on earth. You know, I don't want to stand before him and go, wow, I spent my whole life blaming and accusing and playing the victim role when I was empowered with limitless strength that you said you would give me to do whatever you called me to. Why did I waste that? Why didn't I walk in that? Why didn't I walk in that? Let that not be something you and I say when we get into the kingdom. Why didn't I walk in this? I want to know this power. And it's not about knowing power only. It's about knowing Christ and when I know him. When I open the scriptures, when I sit in his word, when I seek him in prayer, when I get around the church, when I fast and, and intentionally go after the presence of God, when I do that, the byproduct is I'll know his power. I will know his power. There's something about, as a child, knowing how strong your father is. There's something about knowing, yeah, but my dad's stronger than your dad, you know? There's something about feeling safe and secure and being able to do things you otherwise couldn't do on your own because you know the power and the strength of your father. You and I can do a lot more than we're currently doing. Don't settle. Please don't settle. There's so much more. You, we're victors, triumphing. We have triumphed. It's over. It's completely done. There's, there's no amount of battles you have to win in order to really attain the ultimate victory. He has the ultimate victory. Isn't that what we trust in and walk in? That he's the name above all names? That there's no demon, no spiritual force, no devil that can reverse what he's done or touch me because I'm in his hands. Isn't that true? We should live like it. I'm going to pray us out and here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump on our Zoom call in about 20 minutes. Our Zoom prayer room call. Okay. Um, and I know that people don't like that break and they always get like, oh no, I don't want to wait too long. Just wait 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 1130 my time, which Add 20 minutes to your current time. That's when we'll be on this Zoom call. We're going to jump on, pray with one another, talk through these things, take communion together. Um, and so I encourage you guys to join. Be there. If you're watching this later on YouTube in the future, sorry, you can't join. It's already done. But if you're in the present with me, come and join the Zoom call. The link is in my TikTok bio. Just click my picture. Boom, you're on my profile. Boom, there's a link. Boom, click it, there's the Zoom call. The password is Jesus. Surprise, if you're on YouTube, it's in the description box below. And before I pray, let me remind you guys, this is my online career. This is the full-time full online ministry where I support my wife and two kids. So you can visit AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out our podcast, our YouTube channel. Get a copy of my book, Fruitful. A glare on the light, but you can see it uh, right here. Boop, boop, boop. You can take our free Bible study program, Bible study workouts. Um, you can join our Discord community, which I encourage you guys to do. You can hit me up on Instagram. You can support this ministry one time through Cash App, PayPal, Venmo. Um, you can give monthly. You can become a monthly supporter if you're really benefiting from this content and your faith is being strengthened and encouraged and you really want to get behind what God is doing here, you can become a monthly supporter through Patreon. 
all you have to do is go to my website click the monthly support and there's exclusive benefits like you get access to my teaching material and my sermon notes uh, you get discount codes for our above reproach apparel price centered clothing um, you get access to depending on the tier you sign up with you get a free copy of my book a free PDF digital copy of my book um, I just want to give you as many benefits as possible for those who sign up and go I'm invested I want to be a part of this I want to help this guy support his family and keep creating free content that's globally available um, where anyone has access to and so thank you guys for making this content possible for those of you that do support um, God bless you really and I hope to make more content in the future I need to reach a certain goal to start getting more uh, curriculums and trainings out but I don't want to spend too much time explaining that again we're gonna jump on the zoom call in 20 minutes password is Jesus link is in my bio don't miss it okay I encourage you do not miss it and guess what you don't have to have your camera on you don't have to have your mic on you can sit there and do nothing except receive prayer and, and enjoy uh, godly conversation all right so I encourage you guys to be there and I We'll see you in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes, set an alarm, put a timer on, tell your mom. Bye, guys.